3: If someone asked you about your longest day, what would you say? The Longest Day is a concise crisis podcast hosted by Broadstairs Consulting. Joined founder, CEO Leah Brown, FRSA, don't you know, as she unearths valuable leadership insights from fantastic guests that will help you prepare for your own longest day. Season one of The Longest Day is available now. Tune in from the 11th of September for season two. Welcome to Bid atlantic the podcast where we delve into the latest political developments with expert analysis, fingers crossed on that, and with some diverse perspectives from both sides of the Atlantic today. We have a fantastic panel discussing two topics that resonate on both sides of the pond. In anticipation of the Women's World Cup final, we will look at its impact and perceptions of women's sport. And football on the global scale. But first, we turn to America. The latest indictment of Donald J. Trump. This time it's in Georgia. Now, joining me, Royful Brown in Birmingham, are my esteemed panel of experts. First, we have Michael Donahue in Los Angeles. He's an author, journalist, political science enthusiast, and a podcaster, don't you know? We have Logan Phillips, he's back our political pollster who's based in dc who specializes in understanding the nuance of public sentiments and trends we have cory bernard fingers crossed on that don't just cross your fingers cross your legs folks because we are having connection issues cory bernard is in manchester in england he's an expert in political affairs he's going to offer us somewhat of a northern british perspective and we have my cousin from another aunt or uncle i don't know where i'm going with this leah brown in Broadstairs in Kent. She's the founder and CEO of Broadstairs Consulting, a problem-solving management consultancy, don't you know? First, we unravel a complex web of legal proceedings that could reshape the course of American politics. The recent indictment of the former President Donald J. Trump in Georgia has thrust the judicial system into the heart of campaign politics, raising critical questions about the interplay between justice and elections. As prosecutors and Trump's defense team grapple over trial timelines, the implications for the 2024 election loom large. This collision of legal maneuvering and political strategy poses pivotal decisions for judges in the cases that have become rise battlegrounds. Adding to the mix is a recent threat against a federal judge overseeing one of these trials underscoring the precarious security environment surrounding proceedings. In the midst of all this, Trump's response to the indictment and his interaction with the judiciary serve as a stark reminder of the potential consequences of intertwining the courtroom and the campaign trail.
4: But we begin with the Fulton County grand jury indicting former President Donald Trump and 18 of his allies in the Georgia 2020 election case. This is his fourth criminal indictment in less than five months. Trump faces 13 criminal counts related to his alleged efforts to overturn the presidential election results in the state. There are 18 co-defendants, including Trump's former lawyer and the New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis spoke about the sweeping indictment Late last night.
5: The indictment alleges that rather than abide abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. In a statement,
4: the former president's attorney said, quote, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office clearly decided to force through and rush this 98 page indictment. CBS's Nicole Skanga joins us now from Atlanta. Nicole, great to see you.
5: Ed Meg good to be with you too and the former president is being accused of serving as a ringleader of sorts of a criminal enterprise designed to overturn the 2020 presidential elections here in the state of Georgia and before this latest charging document was handed up to the Fulton County Superior Court. The former president had already faced 78 charges in other indictments but this is the first time that Trump faces racketeering charges.
3: Michael, we haven't heard from you in quite some time. First off, how the devil are you, Mike? Yeah, really well. Thanks. Great. Now that you're well, first question is to you. Can Donald Trump honestly get a fair trial? Considering, don't we all walk into this thinking he's either innocent or guilty? And where does justice start and politics end with this? Or is it the other way around? Mike Donahue? In Los Angeles,
4: over to you. I think there's two answers to that. You have the desired the foundational aspect of American justice and saying that, yes, it's going to be completely apolitical. But the reality is one of the first things we do when we hear about what judge has been assigned to hear the case, it's immediately who appointed them. What party does that judge belong to? And I think that's being paid attention to at a level you really didn't see 30, 40 50 years ago, and I think it's from this wellspring of trying to make everything political. And I'd like to lay most of that at, at Trump's feet, but he's not solely responsible for that. In terms of a fair trial, sure. The grand juries that have indicted him already have been very large numbers of Americans, and they've been able to analytically look at the evidence and, and come to uh, conclusions about being indicted or not. Obviously, that bar is a lot lower. But my hope is an American who still pretty much believes in our judicial system really is optimistic that he will get a fair trial.
3: Logan, how optimistic are Americans in the judicial system? I know there there has been a poll which has tracked American sentiment to do with the Supreme Court, and that has steadily fallen over, over time. But do we have any polling specifically about trusting the judiciary? As a whole, because as as far as MAGA Republicans are
1: concerned, everything is rigged. Yeah. So there's this kind of dovetails with the trend in recent polling that since Donald Trump has gone at the helm of the Republican Party, compared to normal leaders of a party, he has two extreme differences. One, he's a lot less effective on average at convincing the average personal, let's say like the median voter of his position. He has an influence, but it's more limited. But second, he is much, much stronger convincing members of his party to positions that were maybe rarely held beforehand. So I think there was more skepticism in the justice system among Democrats if you're going back pre-Trump, partly due to differences in how African Americans versus white Americans experience the justice system. But now it's changed on its head. He has Come to the conclusion that the pathway for him to potentially win the presidency and perhaps even to win some of these cases, if he can move individual jury members who just happen to be selected who support him, is to just put as take make people or convince people that this is a witch hunt, that it's not a fair judicial system. Because if he's running as a guy indicted four times and people think that the indictments are just, then he doesn't have much of a chance, right? But his ability to still be so competitive is based on his ability to convince so many people of that position. So We've definitely seen a decrease, but it's significant. It's not most Americans, but there's a lot more concerns. And I think you can look at each one of these indictments and see some real justification for them. But you can't blame the Republicans for saying, hey, no president in history has been indicted. Now we have four once. Ty, you'd have to imagine then the whole collective history of the United States, at least one of them had merited it before this moment. And so I think that's a big part of it on their end as well.
3: Do we have any polling specifically? around the indictments that Trump is facing. What are the numbers there? And then what are the numbers for, let's say, Republicans, independents, and Democrats?
1: Yeah. So for this indictment, it's a little raw. So I don't think we can get too good of a read from the poll right now, other than to say that we've consistently seen a majority of Americans support indicting on January six related charges and trying to overturn the election. One that we could I, I had built a polling average for the two earlier indictments. They just haven't done it for all four now, but it was like 53% to 37% supported it for the classified documents. And how does that break down specifically, though? Just give us a, like a ballparkish figure for, for
3: independents, because surely that's that's the crucial bit of the electorate, isn't it? Those that don't identify as being Republican, i.e. with Trump
1: all the way, and or Democrats who are in the opposite camp. Yeah, Democrats, it's almost entirely in favor of it, and Republicans, it's almost entirely against, and independents are more torn, but decisively leaning in favor of being for the indictment. So independents are around about 50%, is that what you're saying? I would say you might have independents like 55 to 30% roughly in favor versus against, so there's a really limited number that are against a small majority, but like the net difference is pretty big. And that's why you have the overall majority being in favor of it.
3: Gotcha. Leah, I always love it when you're on the show because uh, you're properly by coastal aren't you? Foot in both camps, so to speak. So the clash between prosecutors seeking swift trials and Trump's defense team who aim to delay till after the 2024 election. What does that really tell us? Does that tell us that A, Trump is as guilty as sin? Because truly, if he was innocent, he'd, he'd want these trials as soon as possible, but to give a poll boost. Or is this purely they're saying, Oh, the American people are going to be confused and whatever. Our oh, man is going to be campaigning and we just don't want to confuse the American people. So let's just put it after the election. What's the reason for this disparity in terms of opinion when it comes to when these, when these indictments should actually be heard?
5: i name mean, a short answer has to be as a rule of law point. The trials need to happen as soon as reasonably practicable. And there still remains the question that even if they were to start taking place immediately, would they be able to be completed in the time required to be able to have a decision prior to Trump obviously being selected for candidacy for 2024 presidency. My personal view is shared by the Washington Post. I, I think it would be disastrous for democracy for Trump to obviously be able to appear on the ballot without these cases having been heard and I think the to answer your question I'm not sure it even matters whether it's a delaying tactic regarding his guilt or innocence I think the reality is that it's in the public interest for these cases to be heard expeditiously and there's really no reason for him to be backpedaling on that score
3: Mike a woman from Texas has been charged with threatening to kill Judge Tanya, who's presiding over the federal trial relating to Trump trying to overturn the 2020 election. This is serious, isn't it? That not only has this woman wrung a federal judge and said, I'm going to kill you, come out with racial epithets, but Trump is echoing them, calling everybody rigors.
4: Yeah, it's disgraceful, and it's part of a continuing pattern that we see on the right, to be honest, in the majority of cases where the right have either initiated violence against public figures on the left or continue to threaten it. Another significant happening was that, I believe yesterday, a website published the names of all the grand jury members who were in the Georgia indictment. And while that's technically a public record, it's really not something you would want to publicize. And Trump has a moral duty, if not a leadership duty, to to tamper down the sentiments. And he's doing the exact opposite, just as he has done his whole career. And to expect anything different, I think it would be silly.
3: Corey, Trump. Is really pushing the envelope here, even though at least one judge, if not two, I forget there's so many indictments against the man, has basically said, be careful what you say outside of this sphere. Be careful what you say on social media. But he knows that where politics and the law intersect is such a, a massive Venn diagram right now that, and he knows that he's an atypical accusant, doesn't he? He knows that. How does a judge actually respond
2: to somebody who is showing naked contempt for the law i mean they only have one option don't they sanctions what would happen to a normal person and i think that gets to the the, the crux of what you're saying he's not a normal person and he knows it and he's going to play it all the way until what is the until it's such an such an unknown because this has never happened before he's got 91 charges those 91 judges, 91 more than every other president combined. It's just started waters. What do they do? Take away his phone? Change his true social login password? Short of sanctions that would happen to normal people, which he isn't a normal person, what, what can they do? The problem is that that
4: flies in the face of our reported base of our justice system where everybody is treated exactly the same. And we know in reality that's not really accurate, but he has escaped from far too long. And to be honest, I think it's just because the judges that have had the power to hold him in contempt have chosen not. And it'll be interesting because the Jan 6 judge is, does not sound like she's messing around at all. And I guess I would not be surprised to see a contempt order come down from her that if he continues to violate it would would wind up with a night in jail. What would happen to
3: America if Trump was to have a sanction that any other American who is fragrantly disregarded what the, the judge has said and is very obviously in contempt of court. If Trump was to spend a night in jail, even if it was just house arrest, which I think is much more likely, and they say that we're going to have to take away your phone, wouldn't that be some part of America up in arms and some parts of America up in flames? Logan?
1: I think that you're for that reason, it's probably not going to happen, but we'll see. It's We're definitely in uncharted territory. I don't necessarily know if we'd have mass violence or anything along those lines. You never know after January 6th, right? It's always a threat, but Trump kept having kind of tweets or troops or whatever you call them, suggesting that there's going to be a massive crowd every single time he's been indicted. It hasn't happened yet. So there hasn't been the widespread protests that he had wanted probably after any of those situations, but Definitely make people, so Republicans lose more faith in the system. And it brings some authority questions for democracy. If one of the two major candidates for the presidency, by far the leading candidate in the GOP nomination, can't go out and campaign, uh, in theory, that's not great for democracy either. But that's not normally the type of thing judges are supposed to be weighing, right? So it definitely puts them in a whole new ballgame. And we'll see what they decide.
3: Leah, there's been some talk from people who are part of the Federalist Society. That Trump shouldn't actually be eligible to be running for president because January the 6th was, was in effect treason and was a, and at the heart of that with somebody who's supposed to uphold the Constitution and actually and absolutely has made a mockery of that. And there is some push that some that there are going to be some groups in some states are going to try and have them struck off the ballot. How would that go down if some right-leaning Republicans say that actually you're ineligible to even be on the ballot?
5: It's difficult, isn't it? Because I don't want to lay my cards on the table, but I think that is an excellent idea. I think that will happen. I think the question is whether or not anything comes of it and whether or not it's thwarted or whether it's successful. I'm not here to opine on whether the 14th Amendment can be interpreted that way, but I just don't think that there is a collective conscience that has forgotten about the Capitol. And I recognise the polarisation. I I recognise the significance of the debate. But I I think it's wild that we are in a situation where there is so much fear about testing these possibilities to prevent him from getting on the ballot. And uh, I would be very surprised if there are not alternative funding opportunities coming from other campaigns to support this, to make sure that Trump doesn't get on the ballot.
3: Mike, America, its political mores, its judicial system, they're actually on trial here, aren't they? These four indictments, these four trials, strike at something which you said before, which is that everybody is supposed to be equal. I live in a monarchy. There's only a, a certain family that can ever be the head of state. We claim to be a monarchical republic, but we're still a monarchy. So we have we still have an aristocracy over here. So we don't think everyone's equal. But you guys, two hundred and odd years ago, broke away saying that everybody, as long as they weren't black and they're only three fifths of a person, was going to be equal. And this case proves that not everybody's equal because behind this man you have millions of people who believe his lies, and are willing to ramsack the Capitol. How can America get through this? Mike Donahue? we're all agog. We're all here waiting for you to tell
4: us that the republic will stay firm. I think the republic will stay firm if for no other reason that the demographics indicate that they're dying off at a fairly consistent rate and their percentage shrinks. I think... To, sorry, he's like... Uh, sorry, the MAGA crowd, the demographics of the MAGA crowd tend to skew significantly older. I think to Leah's point, we're really seeing the conflict of two core American fundamentals is in terms of the equality of justice and uh, the right to a democracy. And that whole contention about removing someone from the ballot for whatever reason right? That it's, they're at loggerheads right there. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm not quite as optimistic as she is about getting him off, but there is this clash of American values embodied in that conflict. I will say that this whole kind of discussion about, do we want to, if we remove him, what happens? Or will there be violence or this or that? It's an echo of the very early sort of MAGA discussions about, we those on the left but you can't insult them you can't make fun of their beliefs you need to engage them in dialogue it's only through calm reasoning that they'll come to quote unquote see the light and I think that's just as much crap as this current thing is we have had ample opportunities to try and draw a line somewhere and just realize that we're dealing the word is overused but we're dealing with a cult here and we need to start acting like it and not be afraid of holding up our uh, legal norms and and having a little bit more of a backbone about it. Can we say that everybody who
3: supports Donald Trump is uh, a member of a cult? Logan, just before, I'm going to let Corey end this segment, but Logan, can you just give us some figures around the percentage of Americans who are diehard Donald Trump
1: supporters. Surely that's way above and beyond cult numbers. I get hesitant on calling people I disagree with a cult when they hold a position that I don't, because in a democracy, it's not necessarily fair to say even when we think the position's ridiculous or extreme, that those who disagree with you are just have something wrong with them, right? So I try to resist that tendency. That being said, there is a certain slice of the Republican Party and it's large. I don't think it's a flat out majority. They'll just go anywhere with Donald Trump. They'll just go anywhere, no matter what he says. They hear it. They hear it enough times. They're going to believe it, right? But they're, not, and... but they're not Republicans, though, are they? Per se, and this is the,
3: this, yeah. I think is is really interesting because uh, the last election when Bernie Sanders dropped out, I, I cannot remember what the percentage is, and I know you're doing some furious typing right now, so maybe you can get this. A certain percentage of Bernie supporters went to Trump, and then a uh, part of the Trump coalition is a certain number of people who see themselves as dis- disenfranchised from the political system anyway they don't vote right so this is the so this is one of the reasons why i believe the republican party feels trapped in and of itself because they know as polarizing as divisive as trump is he also gets out the vote doesn't he
1: yeah for both sides he is the greatest turnout generator in probably american history about 44% of America, of Republicans identify themselves as MAGA. So that might be your answer. Mm. But you're, we're seeing one of this, there's only been like two people that have asked this entire cycle. I'm sure a lot of pollsters are asking this soon. They asked them like, what would happen basically if Trump's convicted? How would it change your vote, right? I don't actually necessarily buy in the numbers this high, but the, one, the most recent poll we had from Ipsos showed 45% of Republicans saying they're not going to vote for Trump if he's actually convicted and in jail. I think it's pretty interesting. And sixty percent of Americans at large. And if that happens, we're talking about a potential landslide. Again, I don't think the number is going to be that high, but it's going to. It could be way higher than people think. So this head-to-head of Biden and Trump is probably close because both are pretty unpopular right now. But the intensity of the unpopularity, I think, for Trump is higher. And the more there's a focus on what he did on January 6th, by and large, Americans are upset about. It. They do think he did the wrong thing. Yeah, Republicans aren't there, but. A slice of Republicans are. That's part of the reason why Biden won. Those types of Republicans broke with Trump before. It's 9% that still can win an election. And the conservative independents who might prefer him can also break, right? I do think these things matter and they do have an influence. And that's why Trump's talking so much about saying it's a rigged system. Because the only way in his mind, I think, that he thinks he can keep these guys and be able to win and try to pardon himself is by convincing people that, hey, it's not that I'm actually guilty or did something wrong. It's just the system's rigged. And if that's an argument isn't stronger than what people are seeing as these trials start to happen, as it gets the 24-7 focus of the news, he's gonna be in a pretty dark place politically. Corey, last question to you.
3: You like me, sir, are a Jamaican Brit, Jamaican Brit and proud.
2: Who and what is on trial? Who's on trial? Donald Trump. What's on trial? This is going to sound so overblown, but the idea, or an I, I an idea of America, and that is that everybody is, I think, going back to what Michael was saying before, that everybody's equal under the law. I think that's really on trial, and I think going back to what uh, Logan was saying, it's the indictments work well for him, especially with his base. But when it comes to actual convictions, if the convictions happen, I think that will be the real test as to whether. People are like, okay, this is it. You know, he's been convicted by a jury of his peers, uh, not just a, a Democrat DA or a judge that somebody else appointed, even though a couple of, at least two of the judges he appointed. I think that's the moment where we really, really that will be, and I think that'll probably be the best thing, not because, because I'm anti Trump. I just think, in, in terms of that'll be the real test. If he's actually convicted of at least not of the push money, Probably not even of the documents one, but if he's convicted of one of these two latest ones, this one in Georgia, or the January the sixth one, and he's actually convicted, I think that the reaction to that is is everything. If the reaction to that is on the whole fair cop, he's done it, he's been convicted, we move on. Or if the reaction to that is something crazy, whatever that is, you know what I, I
3: don't know if there's forty four percent of Republicans who say they're Donald Trump, full stop. I don't think they're necessarily all just going to go, that's a fair cop, gov, and walk away. However, only time will tell. What we should do is spend a little bit of time on topic number two.
6: extraordinary, that 3-1 victory. It was absolutely amazing. Well, let's talk to Sport reporter, live in Australia, Courtney Sweetman-Kirk, who joins us. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I bet there were some big celebrations last night. Certainly, virtually every front page of the papers today is all about the Lionesses and that amazing victory. They were out celebrating uh, with their friends and family who, who've been out there. Um, the whole nation celebrating. Women's sport has just been climbing. Astronomical increase in Interest in the money in the successes, but you know, this is the first World Cup uh, England have had a chance of playing in a uh, final uh, since 1966. How do you rate our chances?
5: Yeah, look, I think we've got a fantastic chance. We've grown throughout the tournament. Um, you know, I know there's been some scrutiny over the performances, but, you know, we've not lost a game yet. We've only conceded uh, two goals, which is an unbelievable achievement. Yeah. So, look, the girls have got a fantastic chance. I'm currently at Graham Park, so they would have been training uh, just in front of me at Central Coast Stadium, where their base has been today. They'll be you know, doing their recovery sessions and, you know, just taking in and, and probably just emotionally as well, just sort of winding down from everything that happened yesterday and uh, they'll be ready for sunday to to give it a good guy
6: yeah that's it the thing is you can't celebrate too soon i mean all you know the hugs and the cheers and the celebrations in the uh, in the locker room uh as what is one thing but still a job to be done on, on on sunday but there's no doubt at all it was a it was a really really good match i mean certainly the first aussie goal and our first uh, goal were both i mean absolutely top-notch goals um and it was i mean it was a really stunning victory
3: the ongoing women's world cup the tournament has not only featured uh, thrilling matches, but also has highlighted various issues surrounding women's football and the coverage of women's sport in general. From the duration of media attention to the persisting gender disparity in sport reporting between men and women, uh, these shape how we perceive and engage with the game. I'm holding my hand up to that. Um, Yet, despite increased visibility, women's sport receives less than 10% of the annual print and TV coverage of male sport, that's definitely true in the UK. I can't speak for the US. Where I don't think it's going to be that wildly different. As the 2023 Women's World Cup unfolds, the tournament spotlight has provided a chance to contemplate the stories that will influence the trajectory of women's sport and football. And I'm saying football, Americans, because that's what it is. And whilst adding to the excitement, the women's final is scheduled for Sunday, and will feature a match between the lionesses of England and that of Spain. Now, Leah, you questioned the gender mix of this panel and said, I don't think that so this panel is fit and proper to discuss such a topic. So I'm going to start with you. Have you been in thrall to the Women's World Cup?
5: Yes, but of course I want to caveat that with classic British cynicism. There is something about backing a lame horse that marks out many of the England football fans. Oh, wow. The men have not had a, a fantastic track record, been slightly slow to, to, to get behind the women, but they, they've done it and they've smashed it out of the park consistently. And I think there is a real buzz and a, a, and a huge level of excitement and pride for what the women's team are achieving. And I don't think that it should be considered by any means less than simply because they are women and not men.
4: Yeah. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, I heard a, a grunt there. Uh, Sorry, but, yeah, that was that was me falling out of my chair. So, so I think we get this, I think in society, this men, women thing. And I think in general, like we need to acknowledge that different doesn't necessarily mean less than or more, or more than. I don't know that there's that. But let's just be honest. If you're talking about whether we're talking about the quality, women's sports versus their male counterparts or we're talking about the revenue that's generated by women's sports versus men's sports and therefore the compensation of and those incredible disparities there's a reason those disparities exist and i think it's okay to say
3: but is it one of the reasons for those disparities which are true the fact that we the media does also choke not give air not give oxygen to women's sport by not covering it
4: in the way that it covers men. No, that's ridiculous because the the media is completely self-centered. They will cover whatever the public wants to know about. So the public doesn't care about women's sports in general. We have this once every four years we hear about the women's soccer and it becomes a, sorry, football, and it becomes a thing for a month and then it goes back to complete nothingness. I tend to believe... Mike, I can't quite get, I can't quite get behind that. I think you have a point to
3: degree about the media, that the media is slightly conservative and generally looks backwards and things that are proven to be a success, which also means that then because it is conservative and it's looking backwards at past trends, it doesn't spark future trends. And also the success of the women's football team in getting in winning the Euros and whatever they did in the last uh, women's world cup that, whether it's me going onto the BBC football page or looking at the sport pages in UK newspapers, there is now mention outside of the Women's World Cup of women's football of Chelsea being a great team, or, uh, Manchester United, or, or Arsenal, etc. There is that, Corey. I, I'm not wrong, am I? Please tell me you're a Brit. You, you like the you used to like the beautiful game. First off, Corey. Why don't you love the beautiful game anymore? Because
2: my team has continually continue. Continually disappointed me. But no, I think I I agree with Mike in the sense that, oh dear. Yeah, I think Mike was wrong, don't you, Corey? He was flat out wrong. Mike, right. At the end of the day, let's be honest, before this World Cup, and considering the fact as well that the England women's team, they got to the Euros. Sorry, they won the Euros. Yeah. Yeah, they won the Euros last year, 2021. And considering all of that, have you really noticed a change in the coverage and awareness of the women's games even since then? And you, um, and you would have expected, you, should, I, think you should, I think you could argue that we should have, and we haven't. I don't think that, I think, I, oh, it's obviously not the fault of the women's game. The women's game, at least professional women's game in UK, in England, has only been going, I think, since the Celtics. Oh, yeah. oh yeah,
3: And because it was banned, women playing football was banned for 50 years by the FA. Yeah, which I find ridiculous. But I think Mike's right. I think Mike's wrong. Leah, tell Mike and Corey
2: why they're wrong.
5: I think you are wrong, but not perhaps for the reason that Royfield's suggesting. The issue continues to be not a lack of funding, not a lack of excitement and not a lack of talent. Um, The primary issue seems to be the gatekeepers, which seem to be the governing bodies. So the FA, whilst it has committed a, a vast amount of funding, seems to be committed to ensuring that the women's game is held back. That is the reason for the lack of broadcasting coverage. That is the reason for the lack of, I suppose, elevation and importance. And how you end up with a situation where the primary representative of the FA, who happens to be the Prince of Wales, decides to be on holiday. Now, again, I refer to this British cynicism, but ultimately, wouldn't you clear your diary to ensure that in the event that the Lionesses were successful, you would prioritise that at all costs? Why has that not happened? The allegations, and I don't want to agree with the telegraph here, but they seem to be because the women's game is not deemed to be as important as men. And it is crazy that we are having to have this conversation in 2023. If you look at the performance of the women and the talent that they are presenting, their kicks, their penalty records have far exceeded the performance of the men's teams across all nations. And therefore, I don't understand why it is so difficult to recognise the greatness that we have stumbled upon here and to give it its bright and proper place in media coverage
3: logan leah's right isn't she and the case for this is absolutely the u.s where the u.s women's football team is ridiculously much more successful than your lackluster make men
1: yeah you're not wrong and americans love what the women's world cup this year a little less because we've had a very disappointing start getting knocked out when we were probably narrowly the top contender going in there was a lot more competitive on paper obviously in reality too Because these games are at 4 a.m. and that's just going to kill the American audience. This is the time zone that's like the time zone the death for Americans to watch this. That being said, the most watched game, the game with the most views going back is 2019 Women's World Cup final in the U.S. of any soccer game. Sorry, guys, football game. But we say that in the U.S., that means something very different in comparing viewership. Internationally speaking, soccer, football game. And the one that was higher than that was the 2015 Women's World Cup game, which I think might be the highest Americans have ever watched a game, right? And it's because as Americans have started to tune in as this game is so, this team is so good consistently, you can learn that this is a lot of fun, right? Okay, the pure athleticism of the guys just for biological reasons, yeah, it might be more intense, but the skill set, I'm not so sure it's true there. And when you watch the way they play, it's just incredible. It's fast paced, it's exciting, and it's great to see your team compete on the highest level like that. And it's been exciting too, as you see more Push for women's rights on all fronts, right? The women's soccer team in the U.S. has been in the lead in that. They're now getting way more pay than they used to, than they should, because they've been bringing in a hell of a lot more money than the men have in terms of viewership. Couple of things. Number one, the U.S. women's football team is most
3: definitely on the way down now from its lofty heights. And you Americans just like watching winners. That means, oh my God, none of you are going to tune in, in the next World Cup, surely. And then I hate to agree with Mike here, but Mike does have a slight point when he was talking around kind of viewership. And with that, I'm going to put commercialization that there, there is no, we can, talk, we can say that the women's football team should get equal pay as the men's football
2: team. Ridiculous
1: they're but, winning a lot more mike if they've made it past the men's team ever i would love the men's team to win more but if they make it past the first round and the women's team brings in one and a half more dollars to
4: these tv companies every year then they should get paid more so by that analogy we should pay whoever wins the single a baseball championship more than the last place team in major league baseball we have separate That's tournaments. you do You have your single A ball and your major league baseball, and they're completely different leagues with completely different revenue streams. And there's just no, they're part of the same game. It's the same sport, et cetera. That analogy is there, but you can't do it. You're, I don't understand. At the end of the day, every athlete, every professional athlete is actually an entertainer. They're, they're, they entertain for a living and their job is to bring in revenue for themselves, for their team, for their sport. And the payouts are commensurate, right? In women's tennis, the women outdraw the men. They sell more ad rights. They should get paid more. If the women's soccer team outdrew or outrun the men's team, then they should earn more. That's what's happening in the
1: U.S. Be- best-selling jersey, I think, at least since 2019, was the Women's World Cup jersey that year. Men aren't able to compete on that yet, and they're getting a lot more viewership. And previously, they weren't getting paid as much. But I understand that we're talking about a very different level of interest in the world versus in the U.S. In the U.S., people are all about it. But I would also just say, Mike, with your baseball analogy, the MLB teams own the single white team. So the single white players are getting promoted to that level if they're really good. Here, we're talking about the best in the world within their certain groups. Yeah, again, I understand there's some biological differences, right? But there's a reason people are viewing this at such high levels. Um, uh, because Americans really enjoy seeing uh, the best women
4: in the world play. Yes. And I've either watched fully or significant highlights for every single of the Women's World Cup. I enjoy watching it because it's here within their peer group, you're seeing some incredible plays. I think you're able to say both things. Like Sam Kerr is an incredible soccer player, but And that was a great goal. It was a great goal. It, it was a great it was off their line. But I I don't see it as a contradiction to say both. The teams are amazing, that it's fun to watch, that you can really get behind your nation or a player, that there's some incredible skills shown. But there's no sex restriction in the FA. There's nothing stopping any of these women to go and cracking into the lineup in in any of the English leagues.
3: Just just a slightly moved conversation on. I'll hold my hand up to being somebody who loves football i'm a fervent birmingham city fan went to our first game of the season last week we are now owned by a bunch of americans and also partly by tom brady even the sense of excitement down at st andrews the ground where we play was palpable last week i have been unconsciously dismissive of the women's world cup and it's because When I go past a pub, the games aren't on. When I talk to my fellow football fans, and this is male and female, the start of the Premier League season is much more important. So when I actually sat down and watched the England semi final against Australia, I was surprised at the standard of play pleasantly surprised, right? I didn't know. Hardly any of the players I knew the names Sam Kerr, but i couldn't have, I wouldn't have recognized her and this was a good game of football it absolutely was and, and and I think part of this is that there is a latent undiagnosed sense of this isn't real football, and I'm holding my hand up to that, uh, which is starving the game. Corey, uh, tell me I'm wrong.
2: No, you're not wrong this time. You're not wrong at all. And going back to what uh, Leo was saying before, I think just shows that you're not wrong. Can you imagine if the England men's team last year got into the final of the, the World Cup? Could you, could you imagine in any universe that there wouldn't be a senior royal and or senior politician going? It wouldn't happen. Um, mm. Interestingly enough, Spain's queen is going, with one of their daughters. So no, I think I don't think you are wrong at all. I haven't noticed in terms of the pub element, but I can believe it because I don't. Again, just going back to the Euros, the men's Euros, the men's World Cup, bunting everywhere. Absolutely, I've not seen any of that. No bunting, no anything. Mm. I must say though, I think media coverage, I think the media has been. To a lot of me, I listen to a lot of Five Live when I'm driving, and it's all over Five Live. I was just in the shop earlier before looking at all the, all of the front pages, was plastered in, talking about the. First in '66 and pictures of the players. I think, from media's perspective, I think it definitely has been covered. As I say, I've been at least from a, a radio perspective, that it's been very much front and center. But again, I go back to what I was saying before. In the same way that after the Euros, women's football well, went silent in the media. The same thing, I'm sure, will happen now. Even if they win, probably just go silent again. What, what does that say about? Uh, go back full circle. talking we were talking about before in terms of media. What does that say about media? What does it say about the people, the gatekeepers? I think as Leo and Logan mentioned before, what does it say about their commitment and their seriousness with which they take the women's game? Yeah, and just on that media point,
3: the BBC have been covering it very well, not as much as the men's World Cup final, but have been covering it very well. And the back of every British newspaper today is about the Lionesses. Full stop, and they dominate in the front. Yes, I was just about to say that. So things have shifted, but to your point, Corey, if this was the men get it getting to the World Cup final, be a national holiday. But he, I, I, I kid you not, it'd be a national holiday. They'd say that the finals are actually on a Sunday, the Monday. It'd be the Monday, All right. So people could get have their beers, get tanked up and don't have to go to work the next day now on that point i think we all need to just wish the lionesses all the best and and very obviously we all know we're all football nuts here mike donahue i know you love the beautiful game what's the score gonna be very much that england will win 3-1 england i like that leah
5: 2-0 england
3: logan 3-2 england goodness that sounds like a thriller 3-2 a bit too nervy for me i don't don't want that i don't want any nerves Corey, what's your prognostication 2-1
1: to what england i'll I'll take a good solid boring 2-1 logan yeah i just want to i just want to add one thing here i think the reason why i started getting passionate women's world cup this was back when i was interning for uh, obama back in 2015 And he had this girl introduce the Women's World Cup team after they won the championship who had written the president just like this letter. My friend was actually the one who got it and forwarded it on to him because they always have a big team of people reading all the letters, right? And she had written him. She She was only 13 years old and she wrote President Obama saying, today I was watching the Women's World Cup, which I love so much. And then my brother decides to come into the room and say, I love boys are so much better at soccer than girls. Whoever is reading this should know. That I hate the fact that boys sports always get the most attention. I want to do something about it. It makes me mad that they don't treat girls equally. And Obama had her read the letter to everyone else. Went on a little bit longer and bring on the team. And it was just the look in her eyes. And the look I see of a lot of other girls around the United States. And I'm sure this is true happening right now in England. for Girls that are playing soccer. It just feels seen to see someone like them play on the highest level. Doing what they love. There's something special about that. Because I think for most of our history... That's not really been the case. That hasn't been something that we paid much attention to. It's along the lines, if everyone counts and everyone matters, then it's something worthy of celebrating. There you go, Mike Donahue, Hang your head in shame. You
3: misogynist. There. You... <laughs> <laughs> and I like that little casual little name drop. And I, you know, intern for Obama. Well done, sir. Well done. I would to start with you, because that was just a lovely end to the segment. Logan, why don't you tell us what you've been up to in the last seven days and where people can find you on the socials?
1: Yeah, so something I've been working hard on lately is building this tool on my site that will help people understand what's going to happen in every GOP primary. And now American elections are weird enough as it is. Every individual state primary is like another electoral college. They all have the weirdest rules. Most journalists don't even understand anywhere covering the primary because it's that hard to follow. I've been trying to break it down to make it as easy to understand as possible and have a live projection for every race based off the current polls. All of that that will probably by Monday. And that's on race to the thewhcom Race to the White House, which is the political news site that I run.
3: Leah, why don't you tell us what you've been up to other than having drinks with a certain suave podcaster in West London? what have you been up to in the last seven days and where can people catch up with you on social media
5: uh, best place to find me on social media is at only one on twitter sorry x or seen heard spoken on instagram I've been busily writing talks that I'm giving on crisis management, trying to lead the team through the launch of a new mediation centre, and trying to figure out how we can have the greatest impact through mediation on politics and sport.
3: Just before I go on to Corey, then Mike, and what they've been up to recently, you had a few meetings on Tuesday, didn't you? Yes. Yes, yeah. Who is the best-looking, the most captivating, the most entertaining person you met on Tuesday?
5: I suppose to answer that, you would need to accept that we're not related.
3: We're not related.
5: We did have a good time meeting IRL. (laughs) It was a wonderful experience, and I look forward to the next opportunity. And the next time
3: will be longer. I won't have to run off and conduct an interview. My Donahue, it's good to have you back on the show, sir. Even if I disagreed vehemently with your put-down of, of the beautiful game as played by women. What have you been up to recently and where can people catch you
4: on social media? I actually got back from a quick trip to one of my favorite cities, Toronto, Canada, a beautiful city, and really enjoyed my time up there. I have started my second company, which is a software development firm, and I've been pouring a lot of time and energy into that. If you need a podcast that'll slowly rock you to sleep every night, you can find me at tiltedwindmills.com. Nice,
3: Corey. Over to you, sir. You have the honour of being uh, the last person to tell us what they've been up to in the last seven days and where people, if they're so inclined, can catch you on social media.
2: So, following on from all of these interesting weeks, my week has mainly been spent trying to sell my car, which has proven a lot more difficult than it should have. But aside from that, I'm prepping for a new season of uh, other political podcasts that we do, following the. UK Parliament sort of timetable Parliament comes back next month that I'll be kicking off so just been doing some prep work for that in addition to trying to flog my car what car do you have is it like a Ford Capri or something like an Austin Allegro is it like proper old and beaten up that uh, I would like that is definitely on the bucket list to get an old classic car like that but no it's just a humble Volkswagen ah. and what's the name of the podcast can I big it up advertise it pimp it it's not Bame, so that's not Bame, not B A M E, and it's a uh, politics podcast. Uh, follow tracking Parliament and also political stories in the African and Caribbean diaspora. Gotcha. All right. There's
3: there's been your panel. I've been Russell Brown with Leah Brown, Mike Donahue, Logan Phillips, and with Corey Bernard. There you go. We always say this, but it's because it's true. Left to centre politics is right thinking politics. But we try and meet our adversaries, those who disagree with us, in the common space. And we try and win them over with a sense of argument, reason and logic. There you go, that's the heart of Mid-Atlantic. Please, for the love of all things holy, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help get new listeners into the show. If you like your politics maybe 40 years old, I've just done part three of uh, the series in 10 American Presidents on Ronald Reagan. He is now the president. It's 1981 to 1983, uh, and it goes through those tumultuous two years of his presidency where there's an attempted assassination. He rides high in the polls, gives the biggest tax cut in American history, and then has to reverse that some 18 months later and have the biggest tax hike to try and balance the budget as America goes massively into recession. If you like experts, and this is Professor Ewan Morgan, who's written a wonderful book on Reagan called American Icon, and there's lots of archive clips. Ten American Presidents. This week's episode is about Ronald Reagan. It's part three, 1981 to 1983. My name's been Royfield Brown. I've had a hoot. I'm so excited. Go the Lionesses. It will be... 4-0 to England bye bye